welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, Leslie Bilby is my guest today. She is the Chief Strategy Officer of Hill Holiday and um, has been in the business as a strategist for a number of years um, and has very interestingly written a book um, on the way to think about strategy today in 2021. So Leslie, welcome to Inspiring Futures. Um, Thank you. Could you give us a little, a little uh, resume introduction? I know it says you live in Massachusetts. I looked in a bio. It says you live in Massachusetts with your three kids, and you've been here since 1998. Um, yeah. And you worked at various different agencies, yeah. including the Massima. Um, so let's uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, story. Yeah, so I, I start, I, I kind of, my career split into three equal parts. So the first third in London, second third in New York, and then this third in, in Boston. Um, and I guess I started, you know, way back in, I, I can't even remember it so long ago. I started in the the late 80s. Um, and my first agency was called Dixon Pearson Partners. And it's nice talking to you, Ed, because you probably remember Call It Dixon Pearson Partners. When I say it over here, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I kind of stumbled into it. I just come from France where I'd done the whole kind of left university, gone to France for a couple of years to teach English to French people and came back. And my first temp job, because I didn't know what to do with my life, just happened to be Call It Dixon Pierce. Um, and then I, I kind of thought to myself, well, this is interesting. There's a lot of young, interesting people here. Maybe I'll, I'll try and stick around. And I was just lucky they were just about to start their graduate training scheme. So after about six months of working in traffic, they put me on it. And then, you know, it was kind of interesting trying to work and do the, the training scheme at the same time. But I did it. Started in account management very briefly and then, you know, was suggested that I switch over to planning in fairly short order. Um, so I was there for a few years uh, and then moved over to, uh, let me think, um, ooh, Still Price Lintas, um, where I met Adam Morgan, and then um, on from there to Bainsford Sharkey Trot. I always wanted to work with Dave Trot, so I kind of followed his career. And when he started his own agency, I was very keen to work for him, and that was quite an experience. And then after that, DMBNB for a while, and then Hal Henry for a while. And then from Hal Henry, if you know Hal Henry, it's hard to leave Hal Henry and go somewhere else um, in the UK. So I thought I can't do the UK anymore. And so I got given the opportunity to come over to the States. And I started at McKinney and Silver, where I worked on Audi. And then from there, I worked at Merton Newman Harty in New York for twice, actually. I'm a chronic boomeranger. So I worked there twice. Um, and then after that, I worked at um, Hal Hen uh, sorry, Hill Holiday. I always get them confused. Hal Henry Hill Holiday. Hill Holiday for in New York for about three years and then went to DeMassimo Goldstein, uh, Digitas for a while, back to Hill Hol Holiday, but no, sorry, back to DeMassimo and then back to Hill Holiday, chronic boomeranger. Um, and that's where I am now. I'm Chief Strategy Officer at Hill Holiday Boston, but I work across New York and Boston. So that's the quick resume of a long career. <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting the CDP um, 
when I when I was deciding what I was going to do as a career, um, my mum had a friend who knew John Ritchie really well. Oh, right, yeah, I know John Ritchie. Yeah, so I, I got to spend. I think he would die recently. He might have done. May well have done. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a. Um, but I got to spend a couple of hours with him and um, got me really excited about the business and was yeah. you know, a big character. He was a and huge character. Yeah, it's funny. I actually saw pictures of John. You know, obviously he became a bit a bit famous because of his son Guy and Madonna. And so I saw him in the press a lot and he never looked any different. I, he must have been in his 50s when I knew him. And when he was in his 80s, he looked exactly the same. But yeah, yeah, you're right. He was a larger than life character, like one of those rarities that I don't think we'll ever see the lights of again in our industry. And what was interesting then for me is I ended up for a brief period of time working at Lowe, mm-hmm. um, which obviously had the direct connection to CDP. Yeah. And, um, you know, really fascinated by the idea that creatives did not come to meetings. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it was just such a you talk you talk to people in the US about that and they just can't believe it. They just yeah. they can't work it out and why and and no. the idea that well, to me it was just fantastic that account people and planners were trusted to really do that I'm work. Not, yeah, I'm not sure that they were trusted. When I remember CDP, it was more that the creators didn't want to go to the meetings. Yeah. <laughs> So on occasion, you drag them kicking and screaming, but there was always a degree of nervousness because you didn't know how they were going to behave. I, some stories I could I, tell. I always heard from, well, I, always, I don't know where the quote come, came from, but it was, don't come back unless you sold it. Oh, yeah. No, people were, people were told, don't come back until you sold it. People were literally fired for not selling work. Yeah. That's how it was. That's how important it was to CDP that you, as an account person or a strategist, your job was to prepare that client for the work that they were about to see. And if you weren't successful in doing that, you you're, you failed. And so you were deemed a failure by the agency and you might get given one shot to do it again. And then, you know, if, if it became chronic, you were, you were fired. It's as simple as that. Yeah. We had this kind of, I remember there was this kind of, um, Frank had kind of semi-retired mm-hmm. at low, but he was still very much part of the agency and was sort of contactable on a bat phone. And if there was a sort of unwritten rule that if you felt there was just a brilliant piece of work that you could not sell, he would come up from the South of France and, and sell it. Yeah. I love that. Um, So yeah, we, we, and then um, I don't, I know how Henry by reputation and obviously being in London at the time and seeing the work and everything, um, was sort of a almost a modern, a more modern incarnation of CDP, you know, and, yes. and, and as a rule break and a, and a rule breaker, as we've seen yeah. rule breakers every decade or every five yeah. years. As a- it's funny. I'd, I'd never have thought of it that way, and that, that makes me feel good because it feels that I kind of began and ended my career in the UK with, with two amazing agencies. I mean, they they were quite different, but you're right. For CDP, you know, it's lovely to talk to somebody that, that remembers this, but for CDP, it was all about the work. It was the work um, came before anything else, before anyone's ego, before anyone else's job. It was all about getting those amazing ideas out there. Um, and for Hal Henry, it was similar, but it was, I think it was a much more provocative agency. So it was about breaking convention, being disruptive, 
you know, the desired response from consumers at Hal Henry was, you didn't just do that, did you? I mean, literally, that's what we wanted consumers to say. And so a lot of the work went out there into the world, either not tested or tested and then released in the full knowledge that it would be incredibly polarizing and that was okay. And I think that because we were such a creative agency, you know, you, clients allowed us to fail to an extent. You know, they would allow us to fail. They would hold hands and say, let's try some stuff. Um, and then obviously when the agency succeeded, it succeeded beyond anybody's expectations. I mean, look at Tango, look at Mercury, look, look yeah. at some of the other ingenious campaigns that came from that place. It was an extraordinary place to work with extraordinary people. Both of them are actually. Mm-hmm. When I so when I think of, when I think of London and I think of Hal Henry and I think of this, what a planner does, yeah. you know, and I always think of it as a very small place, mm-hmm. and and almost like a village. And the plan, I, I think, planners in the UK at that time, a lot of the work was a, almost linguistics. It was mm-hmm. almost like. What's the vernacular? What's the cultural vernacular that yeah. we tap into? And if you think of if you think of tango, mm-hmm. in particular, it was just that was all about kind of cultural understanding, yeah, um, and yeah. getting that so right, understanding your audience and what could entertain and yeah. how the brand could play a role. Yeah, there's an intro. I mean, I did not have anything to do with Tango. I wish I had. I mean, I was there kind of at the time that it was being launched. And funnily enough, I just had a friend stay with me who worked with me at Hal Henry. We were just talking about this. But I do remember this: the, the planner and the account person that were on Tango were equally involved in, in the research, I believe. Um, and they started out by targeting a slightly older audience. And by that, I mean people in their 20s. And I think the work did not do well. And so they just had a hunch that they should take it younger. They took it significantly younger. And then it did. Um, It was just, it was considered shocking and irreverent and exciting. And so they went with it. But you've also got to remember, this was a client that was about to be delisted. Mm. Let's face it, the product wasn't that great, you know. (laughs) I don't think there was any oranges in it. You know, it was always, you know, the the, the kind of the the hit of oranges. was a the nice kind of way of suggesting rumor, a rumor of oranges a rumor a, a slight scoops <laughs> on of of oranges um but yeah um you know so what, very when you, when you, you know? what do you remember very what you felt fun. like mm-hmm. go ahead do you remember what you felt like when you came to the states and you know just having been kind of surrounded by the 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 UK version of of planning and coming yeah. across to the US. And what, what what was the first thing you kind of noticed? Well, the, the first thing I'll say, first of all, I was really, I was young. And secondly, I felt invincible. I felt that I was coming over to teach the country how to, how to be, how to be planners. And of course I wasn't the first wave like John Steele and Douglas Atkin and many others had come before me. But I felt invincible. I felt that, you know, I was coming over with a skill that, that didn't really exist in many agencies and that I was going to I was going to change everyone's mind about planning and the reality of it, that it was really hard. Um, you know, when I started at, at McKinney and um, the account people at McKinney did not want me to be there. You know, I was pulled in with David Baldwin, who's the creative director. We, we joined at the same time by he's now dead but um don morrow was the ceo um and don just knew that for the agency to succeed it needed to think differently it'd been a kind of an old boy network agency 
that had a great reputation, but the reputation was was becoming aged. And so we needed new blood, we needed new, new thinking, but the account people didn't like me because they liked me as a person, but they didn't like what I was doing because I took a lot of the juicy stuff away from them, like the writing of the brief, the doing the research, the finding the insight, the working with creatives. And it's only when, I talk about this in the book actually, it's only when um, Philip Marchington and Jean Rohde, uh, Philip was an expat from Hong Kong, who now, I believe he now works, um, where does he work? I can't remember now, but he still works in Raleigh, but he works um, outside of the agency world. It was only them saying, no, 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 we know what this is and we will not take a meeting unless she's here. And we will not, um, you know, we will not start working on a brief unless she's written it. It was only because of them that I was able to leapfrog into um, doing meaningful work that, that created meaningful change for the agency because we started winning pitches. And it wasn't just me and the two of them. It was the account people suddenly twinging, oh, I get it. I get how this works. Um, but yeah, I'm very grateful to them for, for having kind of really dug their heels in and said, no, 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 we're, we're doing this. Um, but it was, yeah, it was certainly odd. It was, you know, I talk about this in the book as well, like going to the first um, APG planning conference, bizarrely enough in Boston where I am now and walking in and there are 2000 people there. And I look around and I recognize a few faces, you know, the old guard that come over from the London, the London kind of scene, but I didn't know anyone else. And I remember wandering around there, who are these people? How can they all be planners? The discipline hasn't been here long enough. And then when I started talking to people, I realized that they were account people and media planners and consultants and researchers and account, you know, just people that really had no planning skills whatsoever, but true to American style, they had just changed their hats and said, we're doing this and we're here to learn and we're going to do it quickly and we see the value of it. And we can't wait to, for these Brits to home grow these planners until they get to a point where they can take over. We've got to fill in the blanks. And I, at the time I thought it was audacious, but it worked. You know, it worked. Um, within three or four or five years, I think that the U.S. had a planning force to be reckoned with, much to my surprise. Yeah. You know, the, 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 those were, there, was a, there was a good five or six years probably of those conferences Mm -hmm. I think I actually, I came out probably about, I don't know, it must have been close to when you came out, but maybe a year later, because mm -hmm. I remember my, I went to work for McCann in Seattle, mm -hmm. that was my first job mm -hmm. uh, here, and I remember them sending me the VHS tapes <laughs> of the 98 Boston conference. <laughs> oh my, yeah, I suppose they, they would have, yeah. <laughs> They didn't yeah. even have DVD, I guess. But um, yeah, so it was a big, yes, you're right. It was a big scene. And I think what, what had happened, I think, was obviously you've seen it, people had, and it's, it's funny you mentioned new business because, you know, that was obviously, you know, Jay Shire famously called it, you know, the secret weapon. And, and then the same thing happened at Goodby with John. Yeah. And um, everyone wanted a piece of it. Yeah, they they saw this was this was a way of, of bringing something that that clients could value. Yeah, I mean they called it. If you remember, they called it British planning. It was called British planning until not so long ago. Um, like English feet. What's that? 
Like the English beat. Like the English beat. You know, I was just thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> the English beat, yeah. Still can't get used to that. <laughs> so when did you when did you come up with the idea of I need to write a book or yeah. Yeah. So, you know, while I, I kind of say in my biography that I live in Massachusetts with my, with my three children, my three children are actually all at college. Mm -hmm. And my daughter in particular and some of her friends want to get into this industry. And you know what it's like, you know, not, not only my own children, but, you know, anytime you give somebody an informational interview, which I'm always very happy to do because I know how hard it is to break into this industry. You are always asked the question, do you have any books that I could read about account planning? And it's funny how you began this conversation with, you know, why did you think it was important to write another book about account planning? There actually aren't that many books about account planning. Um, I think there are, I believe, and of course, before you write a book, a book, you do your homework and you see what's out there and what the competition's doing. Um, John's book was still out there. And John's book, John Steele, you know, his book was 22, 23 years old at that point. Um, there were some academic books out there. And there were some other books that I'd read that I just, I didn't know what kind of planning they were talking about. It wasn't the kind of planning that I knew. And so I, I kept opining this. Why doesn't somebody write a book about planning? I'm fed up recommending one that's, that happened before the internet. And then I thought, well, why don't I do it? I mean, I'm probably one of the last working CSOs who started in the UK and who spent the first you know few years of, of their careers there. And then brought the discipline over here and I'm still working. I'm still running a department. Why don't I do it? So I did. I did. I, I basically found a, a publisher and we worked together. They were amazing. And yeah, and it, it's, um, it's just about to be launched. So, and it was an incredible experience. April 27th. April 27th. Yeah. So when, when you, when you thought about, it's so interesting that you said, um, 1998 Boston Conference, 2,000 people. Who are these people? It's a bunch of people with changed their names. Mm -hmm. And now fast forward 20 plus years, mm -hmm. everyone's got strategists in their title. Yes, they do. And working out what strategy is, what account planning is, is not easy. Um, no. So what, how did you draw a boundary or create a sort of boundary as to what you thought? Because there are so many schools now of it. Yeah. You know, you've got people doing, I just did a really interesting um, interview with Tracy Follows, mm -hmm. where she's all, you know, she was a planner, but she's now a futurist and she yeah. sort of sees that as a strategic discipline. Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you draw, where do you draw the boundaries around yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I almost don't draw the boundaries. So let, let me explain that. It's, you know, it was interesting even giving the book a title because the publisher and, and I debated, do we call it account planning or strategic planning or brand planning? And I was, it was, I was very keen to have the, the word account planning in the book. So it's called um, Super Strategist the art and science of, of modern account planning. So if you remember John's book was the art of account planning. There's a scientific part of planning now that I wanted to make sure that was incorporated, but I wanted that obviously it's a keyword. So that was one of the reasons. And, and I just felt if anybody was looking for a book in the discipline, the chances are they're gonna be looking for the words account planning. So that's the first part. The strategy part, it does irritate me that everybody's now a strategist, everybody. Um, but in my department, you know, at Hill Holiday, we did something 
three, four years ago that I think we should have done several years before that, but we did it, which is we integrated social digital um, brand planning into my department. And even the content strategists, the business strategists, they report to me as well. The content and business strategists are slightly, they're different. So the, the skill set that they have, I think, is it's akin to account planning, but it's, it's different enough to merit its own thing. But social, digital and brand, they really are completely integrated to the point that I don't even want to hear. I'm a social strategist. I'm a digital strategist. You're just a strategist. Um, and, you know, incorporating the two of those into the, the brand planning department was not easy. The, the way that I did it is I interviewed everyone. Um, I made sure that they were strategists, first of all, because if you remember, you know, a lot of social and digital strategists were really like mini agencies. They did the insight. They did the content development. They did the tracking. They did the placement. They did everything. And so if you were a true strategist, you could stay in my team. But if you were more of a producer or a creative, you were going to go to production or creative or you were going to exit or you were going to you were going to find another role elsewhere. And so when I'd done that, I asked, I thought, well, we're not all going to become super strategists, if you like, all, all um, you know, immediately. It's going to take a few years. So I thought the best way of doing that was to ask everyone to pick a major and two minors. And I expected them to be completely fluent in the major and to be somewhat fluent in the two minors. And then, you know, I said, well, let's give it three or four years and, and we'll kind of assess it from there. So what I now do is I only hire social and digital strategist um, graduates, people that have been, you know, for the first two years of their careers, I want people that started from that foundation. Because what I learned is I can teach the brand stuff really easily. In fact, the strategists in my team who had been social strategists all chose brand as their major, much to my surprise. And, you know, they proved that this can be done. It really, they, they've excelled beyond, you know, my imagination. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I believe that the strategist or X-shaped strategist, if you want, or super strategist of today and tomorrow, we have to have those skills. It's no longer enough just to go and do the research and pull insight and, you know, and be ethereal and, and kind of, you know, and creative, all that's important, but you also have to land the plane. The, the left and the right brain, they both come in, they both come into fruition in, in 2021. Um, and so the science part to me is as important as the, as the kind of the, the insightful part. Yeah. I mean, I, I always, I always felt and talking to people who had worked in, pure play digital shops as strategists, there was a huge frustration mm -hmm. that, they, that they were so downstream yeah. that they, the brief had actually been written by the AOR yeah. <laughs> and handed down to the digital shop yeah. and that they were just tweaking stuff and yeah. playing in a, in a relatively narrow field. Obviously, the, 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 the role of social and digital has been enhance greatly to you know it's almost a core driver now of yeah. everything but back yeah. then it was certainly seen as um supplemental it was it was to the point that you know their individual briefs were often technical briefs and you know in my, my department by the way the other aspect of my department is we took um data analytics out of media alone because we have in-house media and we merged it with our in-house research team and we called it decision science so they're in my group as well it's important to mention that um 
yeah, I, I, none of us, at, we don't really want to hear the word digital. You know, it's, you know, the client has a problem. There are multiple ways of finding a solution. Some of those might be digital. Some of those might be social. Some of those might be on a brand level about creating predisposition or having the consumer feel something that they can't explain. All of that's important. We're, we're very, um, you know, I in particular, I'm very keen on customer journey work as well. A lot of the work that we do is just plotting how the customer navigates a category, how they make decisions, where they fall away, where you can re-engage them. And not only does that help you understand what's going on in their heads and their hearts, it helps you understand their behavior as well. And we use that to, um, to inform media and also creative, um, you know, rather than relying on syndicated and Simmons and MRI and, you know, which are somewhat kind of outmoded tools now. It just gives us another way of planning media as well so yeah, yeah I think but that being said I, I do want to point out something that's really important and I say this a lot in the book that at the end of the day cr creative triumphs everything and so if I find that any of my strategists or myself if I'm veering a little too far to the left it's important that, that we correct ourselves and remember we're in a creative industry and there are some things about consumer behavior that we can't explain and we just have to acknowledge that the algorithm can't get it all. You know, um, the algorithm can only get, you know, future behavior based on past behavior. It can't understand what's going on in a human being's mind. Only another human can do that. And so, um, yeah, I'm very keen to make sure that the insight and the creativity stays alive. It's the most important thing. For a while, and I think it still plagues some agencies that there is not there isn't a sort of respect for digital mm -hmm. because we've seen and obviously this is again this is always in change as we see television become digital but there was a time where there was such a sort of clear dividing line between these two worlds mm -hmm. and creatively one world had all the respect and the other had absolutely zero respect mm -hmm. and, and it and it and it, therefore it was somewhat diminished in the, in the eyes of of creatives well you know it's interesting i think there's truth to that but i also see that in another way so i think that those of us that had been traditional planners saw it that way but then if you remember you had companies like hyper island coming in from sweden and scaring the hell out of everyone and telling everyone you're digital or you're dead you know, that, that if you're not doing this, you do not have a career. And a lot of people fled the industry. A lot of big talent fled the industry. And I remember, you know, in those days, a lot of us, to me, made the big mistake of creating digital um, appendices, you know, what's the best word, no, digital kind of agencies within agencies, where there were strategists and creatives and, and, and you know, digital media strategists, digital, digital production, we essentially created this parasite, if you like, you know, that attached itself to the main agency. And then after two or three years, or we let it loose on the main agency and, of course, havoc ensued. You know, to have lines of planners knocking on my door saying, these guys are doing their own research. What's going on here? You know, and so I always believed, and I'm not right about many things, but I think I was right about this thing. I always believed that digital should have been attached to traditional from the get-go, that we should have learned by you know symbiotically we should have learned their skills they should have learned our skills together and i think that would have meant that at this point we would all be fully integrated instead of still trying to integrate 
you know, 20 years after digital was introduced, you know, 10 years after social was introduced. Um, but here we are now. So we're doing it now. And, and hopefully for future generations, we won't even be having these discussions. We'll just be talking about different ways of solving client problems. So a big, in the 22 years since John Steele wrote his book, mm -hmm. one of the things you acknowledged earlier was the science. Mm -hmm. What, what do you do, how do you define the science and how does that fit? Yeah, well, you know, the, the kind of, to me, the word data has become the new digital in many ways. So suddenly when there was a proliferation of data available to all of us a few years ago, and we all started understanding the importance of data versus, you know, the qualitative insight that we'd relied on for years and years, Suddenly, that's all everybody was talking about. Everybody wanted it. People were gorging themselves on it. And I, I believe that, you know, and I still believe that data is incredibly important. It can be a beautiful thing, but if abused, it can cause absolute chaos. And so to me, you know, the, the benefit of data is understanding when to use it, how to use it, how to interpret it, and what to leave behind, and how to use your instinct because those two things can coexist. Uh, you know, it sounds, it sounds as if it, it may not be the case, but data and intuition can live together. Um, I believe that data needs to play a role throughout the entire customer journey. And, and you know, in our agency, because we have in-house media, we're very lucky. We can create an entire data loop where we start with understanding the business issue by looking at client data. Um, and then we can decide what the KPIs of success look like. We can determine how we're going to get there together. Then we can go and do what planners traditionally do and go and find insight and information by talking to customers, stakeholders, et cetera, consumers. And then we come back and then I don't believe in testing work to death. I, I you know, typically will test work in quant. I think that qual is a really, really fast and easy way to kill great ideas because the consumer doesn't really know what they want. But in quant, they're sitting alone doing a survey and they're not thinking too hard about it. So you get a lot of good insight from quant. Um, but we do use um, quantitative research to test, you know, positioning territories. And as I said, you know, early ideas. And then as they get refined, we put them out in the world and we do A-B testing. We track them. We see if we've meet our, you know, our success indicators. And if we haven't, we reevaluate. And if we have, we start the loop all over again. And so, you know, the role of a, an account planner has really transformed fundamentally from insight generator to the person who's ultimately responsible for ensuring that the work worked, you know? Um, and it's a fundamental shift and a fundamental and important shift because clients don't have the money now to do what they did in the early part of my career where we just kind of winged it and said, let's hold hands and jump in it together. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. They don't have the money, nor, neither the money nor the time for that. Um, and so they are, to me, they are more likely to put um, an irreverent, crazy, different idea out there if they have some reassurance that we believe that is going to work because of the, the, um, the scientific stuff that we've done beforehand. Yeah, I mean, another another change, and I think this is sort of fundamental um, evolution of the discipline. Was for a long time, it was the lone genius. Mm. You know, the, the the genius was wheeled in mm. uh, and expected to pontificate brilliance. Yeah, 
And now you've got so many layers, as you talked about, this, the, the strategy department of 2021. Mm -hmm. The reality is we're all good. You said you have a major and you have two minors. Mm -hmm. And that's, you have a reason. The data people are very good at data, mm -hmm. but they're not very good storytellers. And they have to, you have to collaborate. This is the, this is the way things work now. Exactly. You can't be the lone genius in the corner churning out the decks. You yeah. have to facilitate and collaborate with others because it's through the team. It's through the team now mm -hmm. that you get to the great stuff. Completely, completely agree with that. And you know, I think you're right about. I, I don't know how my head of decision science would feel about this because she is actually pretty creative. But you know, there's two sides of the brain for a reason. They function differently. You know, and and the great thing about having a young, vibrant data team is that they work extensively not only with the strategists they also work with the creatives and the media team um, and they know their their expertise and their limitations they're incredibly aware of that but you know again I think in, in future we're going to start to see more creative data analysts rather than to your point that the genius that sat in the corner and you know spouted stuff out opened the door after six weeks and handed it to you and went back to whatever they were doing. That, that's no longer the case. Like our team is fully integrated. They sit amongst us, you know? Sometimes they don't like sitting amongst us because then they often will have a strategist standing over them, tapping their feet, asking where, where, where the, the work is. Um, you know, they like to be a little bit removed, but, um, but they're fully integrated in, into my department for sure. And now, and now we've got, from a client perspective, mm -hmm. if you look at clients, um, obviously, you know, partic I'm particularly thinking of, of direct to consumer or the growth hackers, growth marketers. Mm -hmm. They aren't really grounded in the same set of beliefs that the previous generation of marketers were. Mm -hmm. I think these people are very much more quantitative, very much more science based. Mm -hmm. believe they can hack the internet to growth and whereas we traditionally i think planners kind of worship two areas one is the consumer and the other is the brand yeah well if you can target any consumer you want and if you can be any brand you want to be because you can a b test your way you don't have to focus and, that, and I think there's this inherent tension between the sort of strategists who want to focus and the clients who believe that they don't actually need to and mm -hmm. they can test their way to that focus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, is, that is the kind of the, the debate, the discussion, the argument du jour, and it has been for quite some time now. And, you know, I think it's important that when we talk about the days of Hyper Island, when was that, 10, 10 15 years ago? We, we pivoted and overcorrected, I think. And then, you know, over the course, one of the benefits of having been around for a while is you see these patterns. And, you know, I remember those of us that had been in the industry a while said, well, it's going to come back. But of course, it didn't go back to the way it was. It just came back in a different form. I think there was an understanding that you need both of these things in equal measure. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, like, you know, programmatic and any kind of other algorithm based, um, you know, analysis, it has a role. And then, you know, the whole notion of, of last 
you know, touch attribution is, is a, hot, a hotbed. You know, the, the consumer doesn't buy something because you retargeted them 16 times because you knew they were looking for a certain pair of shoes and you're serving those shoes to them, you know, morning, noon and night. That's not the reason why they ultimately make a purchase. It might be that you're there at the right time when they're making that decision, but somebody predisposed them towards buying not only that product, but that brand. And the brand stuff is the stuff that is more intangible, you know, softer, if you like, harder to wrap your head around, because that's the stuff that is harder to understand, because a lot of it happens at an unconscious level. Um, I mean, you know that any strategist that's been around for a while know, knows that sometimes you don't know why things work. You just know that they work. You know, it's how so you, you... So your point there is trying to define one point mm -hmm. as being more influential over another is kind of a, a, a misplaced endeavor because it's oh, yeah. actually it's actually the it's actually the culmination yep. of all exactly. those things that form the exactly. That, and that's why I believe that they're both equally important. Like trying to describe, you know, explain this to the younger generation that you need Google, like you, you need you, you need some of these, you know, tech platforms because if you're coming up with an insight that is based on research and intuition and culture and all the other things that, that planners do, and then you're working with the creatives and you're coming up with a campaign, it's not enough just to put that idea out in the world. You have to land the plane now. You really do. And you're relying on those technologies to help you land the plane. That's the whole loop. Um, and I think before we were putting out there in the world and just crossing our fingers, honestly. So at least now we can track was it successful or not. But we have to keep our heads straight and realize that it's not the latter end of that that, um, that convinced the consumer to buy. It played a role. It had to be both of those things together on a brand level and a, a kind of a sales level, if you like. And do you, do you think we pay, do you think we're pay? do you think, I sort of feel sometimes that we're so close to the idea of brand mm -hmm. that we don't, we don't um, evangelize it enough that, that it's not, it's it sort of, it's become sort of ubiquitous and everything's a brand, everyone's a brand and there's brand book, there's brand book that, you know, there's all these, that it's sort of become wallpaper without, you know, back 15 years ago, this there was this whole craze on wall street of intangibles mm -hmm. measuring intangibles and giving value to brands mm -hmm. as a as a as a financial asset mm. and it seems that that you don't hear about that anymore maybe either everyone understands it or maybe they've just forgotten about it um or maybe valuations aren't based on intangible assets anymore they're based on sort of future vision and that's why we work was you know all about was valued on its future potential overvalued on its future potential yeah well the wall street thing again is another example of overcorrection it's another example of you know people that that were, were more kind of left brain just trying to wrap their heads around something that is gen that is generally fairly intangible um, and you're right. I mean, just as the word strategy has become ubiquitous, the, the word brand has too. I mean, part of that is because of the proliferation of brand, not only brands, but platforms that are available to us now. They're overwhelming. Um, and trying to sort some of that out can be exhausting. Um, but I, I do still believe in the power, you know, to, to me, the way that you build a brand is the, the first thing that you should always do is understand that brands, that brands role in culture. 
Um, you know, so why was the brand created in the first place? Even if the brand's 100 years old, why was it created in the first place? What was going on in the world when it was created? What is going on in the world now that relates to what was going on then that could be relevant to today's consumer? And then I think when you have that, you kind of attach yourself not to a trend, but to a shift that seems permanent. You attach yourself to it, you know, and write it as, 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 as for all your worth. And then you become intrinsically linked with that. And so if you think about brands like Airbnb or Dollar Shave Club or um, Old Spice or Tango that we talked about earlier, those brands, exactly what they did. They didn't look for white space. They didn't analyze the competition and say, oh, you know, amongst all these American sodas, where, where, is, where could our little white space be? They just pushed all that aside and said, what's going on in culture and how can we be relevant to this next generation based on their likes? And, and you know, the beauty of social, of course, is that we can now track that in intimate detail. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, brand does matter, but it, it, you know, it can be overwhelming and I think that, you know, Generation Z and younger millennials often get accused of being very fickle and not caring about brand. I really don't believe that. Everybody cares about brand. There's a reason why you're cho you chose the sweatshirt you're wearing right now. There's a reason why you comb your hair in a certain way. It's all about brand. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of it is unconscious. So I, th I think the other thing is, is, is just this, it's just this um, cultural inclinations. Organizations, if successful, are masters of logic. Yeah, they, they, they are logistics machines. They make sure that the soda is made the same way everywhere in the world and gets delivered cold on time. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who want to put um, art into logic. Yeah. And defies logic. So yeah. that's why you have these people trying to put numbers against everything and yeah. Why is why is a planner going working on the Coca Cola business going to Atlanta getting told that if someone had if someone had put this girl in an orange dress instead of a white dress the purchase intent score <laughs> would have increased by a factor of five yeah yeah I mean again it's all all about the algorithm isn't it and and forgetting the human factor so you the know, ch challenge yeah. for the challenge for us as strategists I think in the big strategy. And as you said, is how do you how do you convince the left brainers to be creative? I think the way that to me, the way that you convince the left, first of all, you give the the planners slash strategists permission to be creative, because a lot of them don't believe that they have the permission to be creative. But then you teach them the other stuff, the science part. And again, I try completely believe this I, I i've seen this play out time and time again you do the work you do the foundational work using every tool available to you without stifling your creativity and your intuition you start with that and you validate that or build on that or otherwise you find a better idea based on the work that you do and then you you work with your clients and say okay we've done everything we can to establish that we believe that this is going to work but we also have to acknowledge that there is a small factor um, that would imply that, that a small percentage um, that this might not work. Um, and so I think that when you, you rely too much on research and on, on algorithm-based research in particular, 
you're just basically completing the the kind of the vicious cycle of what a, a kind of a pharmaceutical ad should look like, what a retirement ad should look like, what a a casual dining ad should look like. You know, if I asked you to create a casual dining ad right now, you don't you'd know exactly what to do. If I asked any consumer, they would create exactly the same ad. Um, and so doesn't that tell you that that is the wrong way to create advertising? Because what will happen when that ad gets launched in the world, it might work for a while, but ultimately it's going to be copied by other brands doing exactly the same thing. And then you create this kind of generic cesspool where each brand is misattributed for the other. And so the only way to break away from that is to, to literally break away and stand above it and not look at what everybody else is doing, but look at how you can attach yourself to something meaningful that is going on in culture that's going to resonate with your consumer. I believe that that's how you do it. Yeah, I think I, I think what I think what you said earlier is the it, it, it's what happens is you've got risk aversion. Mm-hmm. A risk aversion leads to consensus, leads mm-hmm. to generic, right. and the way I think this came up in, in a, a, a certainly a podcast. To, um, with uh, yeah, with a couple of planners a, a few months ago, where where you really our job is to mitigate risk mm-hmm. on very creative ideas. Yes, exactly. Very nicely put. I should steal that. <laughs> um, because it, you know, it's it's scary. I think. I think. I think the challenge for us is we, you know, especially you and I who've who spent our lives in what many would consider creative organizations, mm-hmm. it's hard for us to put another hat on and imagine ourselves. There's a reason we do what we do. And, mm-hmm. and you're not working for Smith Klein, Glaxo, or Yeah. You know, um, yeah. There's a reason why there's a reason why those clients pay agencies what they pay them. They pay them to think differently to the way that they do. But then sometimes they stifle that. They forget the reason why they hired that agency in the first place and they stifle it. And that's the reason why you get situations like Old Spice and 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 Tango and, and probably some more contemporary um, examples of that as well that just succeed beyond everybody's expectations because the client was brave enough to let the agency do their thing and stay involved, but not stifle creativity. And, you know, and I I believe that the best clients are the bravest clients. And I understand why a lot of them are not brave. I understand why a lot of them default to, you know, to what they know, because, you know, we know that we all know the average tenure of not only a CMO, but a CEO. And so because they're only around for two or three years, I think a lot of them just fall into that do no harm mode. You know, I, I don't want to screw up the brand and my watch. So I'm just going to tread water and, and do stuff that's safe. And then hopefully I'll hang around for a little bit longer than I expected. Um, whereas when you and I first started in the industry, clients would stick around for 10, 15 years on the same brand. So they were not only in, so intimate with the brand that they knew what risks to take and what risks not to take, but they also, um, you know, launched ideas safe in the knowledge that they weren't going to lose their job if they got it wrong. Certainly not the first time, maybe not even the second time. Um, and I, I think the world has changed. And so I, I think we have to put ourselves into a client's shoes and, and try and deeply empathize with what they're going through and just help them, you know, and just, again, you know, I've said it before, do everything in our power 
to make sure that they are reassured that we are taking a calculated risk together. And we've we've done everything in our power to make sure that, that this is going to succeed. But we just have to acknowledge that it might not. It might not. And that's so that should be okay. Um, but I understand why that's hard because nobody wants to lose their job because they screwed up a 200 year old brand on their watch, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, inter- it's, it's, it's really interesting. A, a few years ago, we did this um, little bit of very, very basic data analysis on, we looked at Starbucks because Starbucks was kind of like, had been hit time and time again with, we're boycotting you because you're hiring these people or you're not hiring these people or whatever. And Starbucks just being very committed to its sort of purposeful decisions, mm-hmm. kept making these announcements. And um, we basically proved that it didn't make any difference. All, mm-hmm. it, all it basically did was cause a negative sentiment spike that lasted a matter of days mm-hmm. and the brand went back to it reset. Well, that, that's an important point. You know, as you well know, when you build a brand's equity um, over years and years and years, the consumer will allow you to make um, a couple of simple mistakes. They'll allow you to do that because the equity is, is stronger th- than what you did last month. Um, if you consistently do, that might be a problem, but um, they trust you. The reservoir. There's a reservoir of goodwill. There's a reservoir, right. There's a reservoir that, that you're dipping into and, and they're going to keep trusting you and they're going to forgive you and they're going to move on and so are you and, and everything will turn out just fine. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's baffling to me, you know, again, beyond the, the self-preservation thing, why more clients will not take more risks. I just, I think if I were a client and I never would be a client, I don't think I'd be a very good client. I'd want to walk away in a pull of glory, even if I, you know what I mean? Even if I got fired, it's like, well, I tried. But, you know, you might just do something incredible and create this amazing legacy and create a name for yourself that will carry you through an amazing career. Why, why wouldn't you try that? Yeah. You know? hmm. So circling back to where, where we started and you, and you sort of said the genesis of the inspiration was wanting your children to kind of have been asking about, mm-hmm. about a career. Yeah. Um, what, what's, what's having written the book and, and thought about that, what's your, how do you sell account planning in 2021 to the graduate class of 2021? Yeah. Well, I rely extremely heavily on the publisher that's going to distribute it for me. Although they did send me a thousand books and a pallet that was dumped in my driveway. And I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with those, but um, um, how do you sell it? Well, I mean, genuinely they're, they're the ones that are going to do the kind of the, the distribution for me, but you I'm do- saying more is more as a sort of a pitch to, if you're standing up in front of a class, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough. I got to teach for a week at the university of Oregon mm. um, and their communications program. And um, my, I, I got to speak in a theater of 500 students. Mm-hmm. And my, my presentation was why being a planner is the best job in the world. Oh, nice. Yeah. And yeah. Um, literally 60 or 70 came up at the end saying, I've never, I've never heard of this. They've been at yeah. communication school. They just yeah. didn't know what it was. Yeah. That, that's, I wonder I, what, what, your, um, what your pitch was to a graduating class of 
you know, don't go work for the startup, don't go work Wall Street. There's actually a fascinating world here. Yeah, but here's the thing that's tricky there. Our industry, and I've got to be careful how I word this. And again, I, I was very careful about how I worded this in mm -hmm. the book. Our industry is definitely shrinking. But actually, when you think about it, it's not shrinking. What's happening is there are so many more opportunities for you to be a planner or a creative, not just in a traditional agency, but in one of the tech firms or a consulting firm or an in-house agency. Or, I mean, I use the term shapeshifted, which is, you know, whatever. But I really believe that that's what's happening. I just think that the jobs have, have kind of, they, they've... Um, they've kind of spawned out of the, the traditional agencies into just for further kind of opportunities in, in different industries. And I think that's a good thing. And so I think if I were to speak to, a, you know, a, a bunch of university students, I would say the same thing that you did. I would say this is the best job in the world, but for your generation, you can do it in a multitude of different places. If you are somebody that loves technology, then go do it at Google or Facebook or Spotify. You know, if you're into music, go do it there. If you're into, you know, you're a little bit veering towards the left brain, then go do it at Accenture. You know, they gobbled up Droga 5 and they'll probably gobble up more agencies. You know, if you love fashion, go work for an in-house agency and a fashion brand. I think that it's much freer than it was for you and I, where you joined an agency and you became a planner, which was wonderful. Um, but I, you could argue that that really nurtured one flavor of planning. And I think that now that there are mul a multitude of different flavors of planning that, that are available to the next generation, which is exciting. You know, every time I think, you know, it's time to hang the shingle up and, and move on, something happens in our industry that makes it really interesting all over again. You know, and, and I really think it's a brilliant time to be joining the industry. And if you're the kind of person, somebody said to me, well, you know, it's so unstable. Why would you do that? And, and my answer to that is, if you can't live with instability and uncertainty, do not join any form of agency and do not become a camp planner because you will not succeed. <laughs> you know, you can only be a great planner if you embrace uncertainty, right? I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a great point. Um, great. This has been awesome. It's flown by. It's been fun talking with you, Ed. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing and um, the very best of luck on the, on the launch. But thank um, you I appreciate it. I hopefully, I hopefully we'll have the wherewithal to get this up um, prior, nicely prior to uh, when the book uh, launches officially. That would be wonderful. All right. Thanks, Ed. Thanks so much for your time. See ya. Bye. Bye. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.